I want to thank you so much, uh, Tina and Divinity, uh, in your uh, bringing, uh, allowing us to worship today. I'm so grateful that uh, you have given your time and your talent uh, to allow us to be able to worship uh, not only with you, um, but to be able to be in, in God's presence this morning. So, this morning we are um, going to be continuing in our book, in, or in the book of Daniel. We're going to be in chapter 11, and I'm really excited about uh, all of that. Um, I'm so grateful that we had the opportunity to be um, just here and studying it. I know that every year, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult to find good Christmas messages to uh, preach on. And I know one year I preached through the book of uh, Jonah uh, for Christmas time, and I thought that was an interesting thing. And other years I've done more traditional stuff where I've dealt with uh, the book of uh, Matthew and Luke as we looked at the Christmas story and different characters. But this year we are continuing a study in the book of Daniel, largely because uh, we started this a while ago, and uh, we want to get through the entire book. And there are 12 chapters we've had a total of 13, 14 if you count the Wednesday night where we did two verses um, um, messages planned and due to COVID and some of the other issues we sort of pushed our, our time right up into the Christmas season and there's just not a lot you can do about that uh, and I've often wondered why that was obviously I feel like God was uh, leading me to bring a message in the book of Daniel I thought every week I kept saying well Lord do you want me to preach a more traditional message it's getting closer to Christmas uh, we had Thanksgiving uh, but each time that I prayed about that, I kept feeling and getting um, God's uh, confirmation uh, that I needed to stay with the book of Daniel. And I think one of the reasons why, and I don't know if you guys are fully aware of this, uh, but you know, obviously Daniel wrote the book of Daniel, it has his name, uh, and Daniel wrote an amazing book of prophecy that was inspired completely by the Holy Spirit, interpreted by angels. Last week we talked a lot about uh, the concept of uh, spiritual warfare. We're going to address that slightly this morning, but mostly we're going to get right into the meat of the vision that we um, set up last week with the prelude and the, and the visitation of the angel and also the, the Christophany or the Theophany, um, the vision of, of uh, Jesus um, standing in the midst of that river, um, the man in linen, if you will, the priestly garments that we talked about last week. And But a lot of people ask me, well, why would we want to talk about Daniel? Um, well, Daniel was a lot of things, a prophet, uh, a godly man. He was beloved of God, one of only two men, uh, himself included, uh, that were mentioned in that way in, in all of Scripture. He was um, dedicated uh, to God from the time that uh, we first encounter him as a young man all the way through till the end of his life. Um, as far as we know, I mean, the final chapters has him in about 85. 86 years old and we don't know how much longer he lived after that but we can fairly be fairly certain that if he served God for 85 years that he wasn't going to stumble in the last couple. Um, even so uh, he was genuinely a man who uh, God uh, genuinely cared for and uh, listened to and he was a man of prayer he was a man of quiet uh, humility but one of the other things about Daniel was that he was given a position of authority after, not only before, but, but also more particularly after the fall of Babylon. Um, according to the end of the narrative in chapter 6 in the book of Daniel, we see that Daniel was elevated to a position of great 
prominence. Um, he was put over the magi, the um, the individuals that were the, I guess, the hereditary priestly line that were the the highest in the land as far as the wisest, the most, um, um, uh, I guess, the more the where the concentration of power was the Chaldeans when it came to all of the wisdom that was of the old world. It was common um, in the old uh, in the old world in a lot of the writings that they would talk about the Chaldeans and, the, and their excellent wisdom and just their ability to be able to be um, uh, to be called upon for uh, advice or to be advisors for the king. These were your astrologers, your astronomers, the, the people that studied the scriptures of the day. Not just the holy scriptures that we have in the Bible, but they also read all of the, the, the manuscripts that were out there. They were very wise individuals and Daniel was put in authority over him. Because of that, he uh, he, it was a hereditary position. He knocked a whole bunch of people out of the way to become the top dog in that um, environment. And when that happened, um, that's when the whole lion's den situation had to occur. It had to happen that way so that, uh, um, uh, in their minds, obviously the enemy, so they could try to get rid of this upstart who would think to possibly stand in a position that he should never have held. Now, we know the situation that came after that was that Daniel was vindicated by God. The, the mouths of the lions were closed by a strong angel. Um, and uh, Daniel came through that unscathed. And in the end, those same lions uh, were fed the individuals who uh, threatened Daniel to begin with. And so many of uh, the folks that were against Daniel's rule were instantly taken out of there, taken out of the way. And so Daniel then began to uh, put, he was put in a position of great authority in one of the most important places that was going to come into play in the very beginning part of Matthew when uh, they talk about the visit of the of the wise men, the magi from the east. Um, it's interesting when you start looking at the stars in heaven. Um, scripture talks about in the book of Numbers, chapter 24, verses 17 through, I think, 18 or 19, about a star that's going to rise um, and a scepter, and basically a king is going to emerge. Uh, the prophet ironically enough, was given by um, not a friend of, um, of Israel. In fact, a prophet named Balaam who was being paid to prophesy against the children of Israel. But every time he tried to uh, take that money from this foreign king to prophesy and curse Israel, um, God just stopped him and put a word in his mouth of prophecy that was not a curse at all. It was actually true prophecy. And it's interesting that that prophecy prophecy was the one that talked about a star that was going to come, and that star was the one that, when it arose, it was the one that led the Magi from the east, the Chaldeans, all the way to see the king. Now, why were they looking for this star in the first place? They were looking for the star in the first place because these were the ones who Daniel himself trained. These were the ones that were left over after the purge of Darius, when um, all of the um, all the folks that were against Daniel were thrown into the lion's den. Not just themselves, but their families, their offspring, everybody in their household. There was nobody left to contest what Daniel had to say. So Daniel had control of the most important and powerful um, uh, university the, the, the time the world had known. And because of that, uh, it led those men to 
follow a star that they had read about in prophecy and all of the other prophecies that led them to Israel and then eventually to Bethlehem where they presented the, um, uh, those royal gifts to uh, the Son of God, to Jesus the baby. They gave him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, I know we'll talk about this at some time in the future, but I just want to say, not only did these men who read Scripture, who were waiting for this event to occur, not only did those men show up and deliver gifts that should have been given to a king, right? But they also delivered a prophecy that would ultimately be fulfilled on the day that Jesus was crucified. You see, he was given gold, which is a gift of a king. He was given frankincense, which was the gift of a high priest or a priest. And he was given myrrh, which was a symbol symbolic um, uh, of, of death and the death that he um, had on the cross. Well, it just so happened that when Jesus Christ was crucified, above his head was tacked a sign, a sign that was put there, ordered there by the ruler of that province. It was signed by Pontius Pilate, and it said, here is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Even the, the Jews at the time were upset by this statement. They wanted the sign to say he called himself the king of the Jews. But instead, Pontius Pilate wrote, Jesus, the king of the Jews. And it's interesting because when he wrote that, he was writing as the uh, local um, representative of the emperor in Rome. And by saying that, he in effect said that the Roman Empire acknowledged Jesus as the king of the Jews, even though the Jews did not. And then, of course, we know that he was on the cross for us. He was acting in our stead as our high priest. And so we know that when he stretched out his arms and he took that, that, that moment of sacrificial moment where he said, no man takes my life, but I lay my life down. When he stretched out his arms there, he fulfilled the role of high priest and sacrifice. And then, of course, the myrrh. The myrrh that represented his death. And we know that... Um, in the end, when he said it is finished, and he breathed his last breath, um, and he died, um, that that prophecy was also fulfilled. And so, all of that can be tied right back to Daniel. I don't know if the men that were that, that were uh, called uh, to visit the, uh, the you know the newborn king knew from. Uh, directions that were given by Daniel that they were to bring those three gifts. I don't know if this was a last minute thing or something they planned out ahead of time. We're not told any of those details, just that he was given that. We can't infer or find anywhere in the historical record um, uh, similar gifts that were presented uh, to kings at their birth and just those three things. Um, we don't know why they chose them. All we know is that those three things were symbols of the uh, the life and the death of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And it's just a beautiful picture of how good God is. So, that being said, we're going to dive right into this. And we're going to be in Daniel chapter 11. Um, and we're going to be looking uh, deeply into what Daniel has to say. Um, it starts off in verse 11, I mean verse 1, chapter 11, uh, when still the angel is speaking. The angel says, In the first year of Darius the Mede, I arose to be an encouragement and a protection for him. Now we know that this 
particular prophecy as a, um, was given to Daniel in the third year of Cyrus, the king of Persia. Um, this had very little to do with Darius the Mede. Darius the Mede, or at least not the first year. And we know that this is not Daniel speaking. This is still the angel that is giving him the interpretation of the vision. Most people, myself included, believe this angel to be Gabriel. We know that Michael is the angel that was given charge over the children of Israel. And I find it interesting that Darius the Mede... Uh, was uh, was a person of such high prominence in the plans of God that God actually gave him and his court, if you will, their own angelic guardian, if you will. And that's exactly what this angel was. Whether it was Gabriel or not, it's not relevant. What's relevant is what he did. He said, from the very first year that Darius the Mede rose to power, I was the one that was guiding and protecting him. Now we know from Darius' own words after the, um, uh, the lion's den incident, that uh, he acknowledged that Daniel served the God of gods, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. He um, he definitely acknowledged Daniel's God as being um, of great prominence. Whether or not Darius came to know Jesus as a Savior, um, I can't really tell you. That's not up to me. I can only tell you what Scripture teaches, and obviously acknowledges that Daniel had um, had a, a prominent role in the spiritual realm. Now that being said. Um, we are turning our thoughts and our minds now to the next part of this. In verse 2 is when he begins with this prophecy. So verse verse 1 really should have been in, in chapter uh, 10. It should have been that finishing part of chapter 10. Because verse 2 in chapter 11 is really where it begins. He says, Now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia, and then the fourth will go and gain far more riches than all of them. And as soon as he um, becomes strong um, through his riches, he will um, he will rouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. Now I want to stop there right now. We're not going to read through all of this, um, these sections here. We just don't have time. Uh, unfortunately, I would love to. I'm a, I'm a, a history geek. I, I, I love uh, diving into the historical part of things. I, I love uh, the Word of God and when it comes to theology and things like this, you know, I enjoy it. In fact, I've, I've often tell people, give me a list of begats and I, I'm just in second heaven. I, I love to read the begats because there's so much history and so much theology um, in them. It's, it's just neat to see those, and a lot of people overlook them. Um, but the reality is we just don't have time to go through this. If I were going to teach this um, this book, or particularly this chapter in a classroom or a college setting, I would probably allot three or four, maybe even five sessions just to deal with the historical part of this. But I think that um, in a Sunday morning sermon, it's not a time so much to go into a history lesson. Although I've said many times in the past that all scripture is, is historical, it's spiritual, and it's practical. Um, and I would love to be able to just dive into it. But I'm going to give you the, the, the quick historical and the quick spiritual, and then we're going to look at the quick practical before we get to the, the second part, the meat of the message, if you will. It's, it's this here, and the, the most important thing you need to see in this is the incredible degree of accuracy. Now, the opponents against Daniel, uh, being the actual author of the book, will tell you that this was written after the events happened. People that don't know history and haven't looked at the historical um, archaeological evidence will try to convince you that this book was written after the events actually happened. Because they're, and, and they're, and they're really their only answer, their only defense is there is no way that anyone could be inc this incredibly accurate without writing after the events happened. 
unless it's a supernatural act by an omnipotent God who is outside of time, who created all things, who knows all things from the beginning to the very end and can tell us in every instance, in every second of what's going to actually happen. Uh, wait a minute, that's the God we serve, right? So why can't God do this? Well, obviously, if he could, then he would be God. And that's the problem that people have with this passage, is that only God can do this. Hello? And therefore, if only God can do it, then there must be a God. And if there is a God, then maybe Daniel was right to serve him. And if Daniel talked about the coming Messiah, and he was so precise about the day, then maybe just possibly Jesus is that Messiah. I've heard a rumor, and I haven't spoken to any rabbis, so I, I don't know if I can um, just 100% say with, with complete certainty and accuracy this is true, but I heard it said about the founder of the Chosen People Ministry, um, that he was a rabbi, he was training to be a rabbi, studying a rabbi, and he happened to open the Bible, um, the Old Testament, his Old Testament, and he happened to read through the book of Daniel for the first time because... Um, somebody encouraged him to read that was a Christian and he had always said uh, he had always been told by all his teachers that he shouldn't study the book of Daniel and when he opened up the book of Daniel and started really reading Daniel chapter 9, 10, 11 and 12 he began to be convinced that the Messiah had come already and when he started looking at history he began to realize that uh, Daniel actually or that Daniel was, was right and that the Messiah did come and it was Jesus Christ and the Jewish people missed it and uh, he when he became a Christian and went on to uh, uh, found a ministry that was dedicated to reaching Jewish people. Now, I can't say for certain about that, and I don't know if all rabbis are encouraged not to study the book of Daniel. I just don't know. I can't make that statement. But I can say this, that if anybody were to study the book of Daniel and the historical evidence that proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that we have copies of the book of Daniel from the Qumran scrolls and the Dead Sea scrolls that are old Older than the Maccabean period that this bulk of this 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 chapter talks about. The Maccabean period talks about the revolt of the Jewish people against the Seleucid Empire. Um, the one uh, which we're going to talk about in a, in a few minutes, um, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, who was the one that sacrificed uh, a pig on the altar in the Holy of Holies after erecting a statue of Zeus in what we call the Abomination of Des Desolations. Um, this, was, this all happened, this all prophesied that it was going to happen long before it actually did. And so um, anyone that says otherwise just doesn't see the historical accuracy of, um, of Scripture. And that's, that's the thing that we just have to understand. This is incredibly historically accurate. And so in light of that, um, we now can turn, without a shadow of a doubt, looking at this, knowing that this is writing about history before it actually happened. He's talking about all of the emperors in Persia that were going to rise up all the way to Xerxes, who got so full of himself and who at one time was, was in charge of more men than you can shake a stick at. And he had the largest army that the world had ever known. And he uh, decided he wanted to go against the Greeks. And he tried, and he, and he failed miserably, um, and movies and, and television shows and, and books have been written about this event. Xerxes tried, just wasn't able to completely do it, but he, arose the, he aroused the anger of the Greeks, 
and that led to verse 3. Now all these things are really restated over and over again. Daniel really, uh, from the very beginning until now, has always had like one big vision. It's that vision of the beasts and the um, they came out of the sea. It's the, it's the vision of all the different um, kings that would come and go. It's that singular vision that was going to lead to uh, the rise of Alexander the Great. This talks about Alexander the Great in verses 3 and 4. We're not going to read that, um, but it does talk about that. It does talk about how in the end his kingdom was going to be broken up in four different areas um, by four different generals, not his own children. And um, we know that happened. He talked about that in other visions. And, and Daniel or, uh, Daniel's given more clarity clarity in that instance. And in verse 5, it talks about a king of the south and the king of the north, right? And so, yeah, backwards, king of the north, king of the south. We're talking about two the two kings that uh, took over that uh, that area. Um, the Seleucid kings that took over the northern kingdom, that that uh, um, area in, the, in the, where Byzantium was, Constantinople, that area, and then Syria, if you will, and then the one that took the Ptolemies that took um, Egypt, and how there was a constant battle that was being waged back and forth between the two of those generals that became kings in their own right, and they never did see eye to eye. They were constantly battling for territory. And guess the, what the neutral zone was. Guess what the buffer state was between those two countries. Yes, you guessed it, Israel. And so that's why this this uh, bit of prophecy that happened obviously before it came about, but reads more like history, was so incredibly precise. And I could go into all the different areas. In fact, I would encourage you, if you're a history nerd like me, I encourage you to open up your book of history and, and and uh, look at the wars between the, the Seleucid Empire and the Ptolemaic Empire. That means the Syrian guy um, and the Egyptian guy. And all the battles that they fought, all the different kings, every one of those things to a to a, to a tiny little degree of accuracy is, is recounted in verses 2 through 20. Um, it's incredibly accurate. And this is why I think it's so amazing that we have a God that is so powerful that can give us this information way ahead of time. With, I mean, honestly, I, anybody that is not a believer that God truly is on high and omnipotent, it, it just has never read the book of Daniel. I tell you, it's incredibly accurate. Um, the amount of history, the rising and the falling, the different kings. The, 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 there's even a talk in these verses about a queen that is set aside and a peace treaty that is uh, formed because of a, a union between a, an Egyptian princess and, a, and the, the Seleucid king and how that, that jilted queen then kills um, uh, the, the upstart princess from Egypt and then remarries the king and kills him on the Seleucid empire and then the Egyptians they got all angry at that and they invade. I mean all that's right here. It's like to the degree of accuracy it's just absolutely astounding. To me, I read this and I don't see how anybody can walk away from this knowing the archaeological evidence that proves that Daniel was written before these ever happened can walk away questioning whether or not there is a God. Um, there is just no way any of this could have possibly happened. In fact, in the in, in, this is just amazing. Actually. Chapter 11 should blow any historian's mind away. In the first 35 verses alone in chapter 11, there are 100, at least 135 prophecies which have literally been fulfilled and can be corroborated 
by a simple study of history during that period. And since no human being, we know this, can possibly know the future apart from divine inspiration, there must be a God in heaven who revealed these matters to mankind. But now that being said, I just want to um, take a moment to look not just at Daniel, but some of the, because this can be kind of concerning and disconcerting. This can be kind of scary. We're going to get into discussions about the Antichrist today. We're going to be talking about things that have yet to come. But I want you to be comforted to know that God is still on the throne and he was comforting us not only through Daniel and his prophecies, but also in the writings of one of our favorite apostles, and that's uh, Paul. So keep your finger in Daniel. Let's turn over to Romans chapter 15. I want to show you something that I just I just find amazing. So in Romans chapter 15, let me get there real quick. Uh, Paul is writing obviously to the church in Rome. He's writing to us, the Gentiles, and he wants to give us sort of a, a final thought as he closes out his book. But in Romans chapter 15, starting in the first verse, he says this. He says, writing to us, right? I'm writing to the church. He says, Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength, and not just please ourselves. We're not studying this scripture just to make ourselves happy, just to give ourselves comfort. We're doing this because we want to give comfort to those that need it that aren't children of the living God, right? And he goes on, Paul goes on in verse 2, it says, each of us is to please his neighbor for his good and to his edification. That means build up our neighbors. Even as, um, for even Christ did not please himself, for it is written, the reproaches of those who, who reproached you fell on me. For whatever, Paul continues in verse 4, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Remember, Paul is writing to the church in Rome, but their only Bible they had, aside from a few letters that were written by the apostles, was the Old Testament. And so there was a lot of discussion about the Messianic verses and the prophets. And since Jesus specifically called Daniel a prophet, we know from the writings of the first and second century leaders that Daniel was heavily in their mind as they were studying scriptures and preaching and teaching the first century church. And so we are given these to give ourselves comfort and encouragement to those that need it and to help us with our perseverance. So in this day and age, this is the time to persevere. This is the time that we are to stand strong for those that aren't. He goes on and says, Now may, may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement uh, grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to conform to 
to confirm the promises given to our fathers. Now he goes on to talk a little bit more, but the most important thrust of that is the fact that we are given this information so that we might be unified in a single message to give comfort to those that need comfort the most. Those that are without hope. Those that don't know Jesus as their Savior. That don't have a hope that there is going to be a future where God is in control. But we know that that's the case. In chapter, in chapter back in Daniel, in chapter 11, verse 21 through 35 is a discussion almost, well not almost, it's, it's, in, it's entirely talking about a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. Okay? Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes was a name he gave to himself. It literally means in the Greek, the illustrious one, right? Thinks pretty highly of himself, he does. Well, it's funny because among the Jews and some of the other uh, nations around him, um, he became a laughingstock, a joke, if you will. And uh, they used to jokingly write about, especially the rabbis uh, during that time period, they used to call him um, Epinemes or Epimenes, which literally means um, Antiochus the madman. Um, so he was definitely a joke to the Jews, but to himself he was pretty full of himself. And he did have a bit of an army. And if you read verses 21 through 35, I guarantee you, you're going to see um, just a track record of failure and frustration of an individual who desperately wanted to um, magnify himself to a position of great height. Um, but the interesting thing about it is is that when it really gets down to it, it, get, it in verse 28 it really lays out his heart. Right? We know that this guy Antiochus Epiphanes um, was a man who was controlled completely by um, uh, uh, evil spirits uh, and evil entities that uh, you could say fallen angels, whatever you want to say that, def that definitely wanted to see the destruction of the children of God. We know that in verse 28 because it says after he um, um, after he had problems and trying to battle and not be successful um, he will return to his land with much plunder but his heart will be set against the holy covenant and he will take action against um, uh, take and he will take action and then return to his own land and then it talks about the appointed time the king of the south will rise up he, his heart was to take action against the, the people of the covenant uh, we know that uh, this happens in verse 32 it talks about um, the very end of verse 32 it says that um, God will, will display his strength and take action um, and preserve some of those individuals in verse 33 it says for those who have insight among the people will give understanding to many to the many yet they will all they will fail by the sword and by the flame and by captivity and by plunder we know from history that um, that one out of every three Jews were killed um, and it was a terrible time it was just a time of um, of slaughter as as once again the enemy of God the enemy of the people of God wanted to see the destruction of God's um, purpose and why is that um, and I'll tell you the, the biggest reason is that the enemy hasn't didn't know when the Messiah was going to be born, but he knew what family the Messiah was going to come from, and so he did everything in his power to to subvert and destroy and to disrupt the line of the Messiah, so that there would be no children of Israel to have a Messiah being born to, and so that was his goal all along, and he used whatever king came along that he could to accomplish that. Um, verse. 34 and 35 talks about some people would fall to hypocrisy and join in with this evil pagan king. Um, some who had insight, who were wise, would, would fall 
Um, but there was a purpose to this. And the purpose was to refine and to purge and to make themselves pure. And we know that during the time of the Maccabean revolt, when the children of Israel said enough is enough, we can no longer sit by while a madman sits on a throne over us and seeks to destroy our very way of existence and to profane our God. And so they rose up, they threw off the shackles, and they were able to take back their land. And that all can be read in the first and second Maccabean um, books. We don't keep those in our Bible because they're not scripture, they're not um, inspired, but they are historical. And so that leads us uh, to this final passage that I really want to look at this morning. And that is uh, verses 36 through um, the end, verse 45. I'm not going to read all of them, but we are going to read a bunch of them as we go through this, mostly in interest of time. And I encourage you to, to read um, ahead. In fact, I would encourage you to begin reading this week um, to come, chapter 12 in the book of Daniel, so that you can be ready. Because, uh, you know, this obviously time is always of an, uh, of an uh, issue with us. Um, and we're not able to read all of the scripture, but I think it's important that we do read scripture so we know where we're coming from. Um, but we're coming into this uh, description of the career of, of one of the most evil men in history um, and how this man will be um, destroyed and judged. And this man is that little horn that's spoken of in Daniel chapter um, chapter 7 and chapter 9. This is the man of lawlessness that Paul talks about in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. This is the Antichrist that was named so by John the Apostle in 1 John chapter 2 verses 18. He was also referred to by as the beast in Revelation chapters 11 through 20. This is that antichrist individual that has yet to come. So verse 36 to 45 has yet to happen. Just as, and, and this is the reason why it's important we study this, because just as, as God was incredibly accurate down to the just the smallest degree in verses 1 through 35, we can expect that God is going to be incredibly accurate in verses 36 through 45 um, in the second part of this prophecy. And that's why we study this. Um, Daniel is revealing this to us because he wants us to know. This chapter closes with a pronouncement that there will be no escape, no help for the Antichrist. He will be judged by God, and when that judgment falls upon him, it will also hit any and all who follow him, that entire evil empire. This is a huge and vastly important thing. So, starting in 36, I'm just going to read a little bit, and then we're going to break it down. Verse 36 says this, Then the king will do as he pleases, this king that will arise, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god, and will speak monstrous things um, against the god of gods, our god. And he will prosper until indignation, till the indignation, the full magnitude of his sin is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. So, Basically, this lays the groundwork. This king will rise up, and he will be, and he will magnify himself. He'll lift himself up. He'll become fully immersed and and fully vetted in the in the rel, in the rule that he has. And he will magnify himself to a place where he will put himself above every god. 
and he will speak horrible things about our God. This is what it says. I'm not making this up. I'm just repeating what it says. And he will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women, nor will he show the regard of any other god, for he will magnify himself above them all. You know, I've been pondering this particular verse for a while um, and really just sort of trying to dwell on this and trying to understand exactly what's, what's being said here. Because there's been several preachers and, and theologians that I think in times have, have either overlooked this, didn't go deep enough, or simply were wrong in the way they the way they described this. Now, the nice thing about the New American Standard is that we have a word-for-word -word translation from the Hebrew. Um, and this particular word-for-word -word translation is incredibly accurate. Uh, and so what we're reading here is is um, is a very accurate rendition of, the, of what we have in the Hebrew. And he says he will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for, and then it stops there, but the gods of his fathers. Now, this sort of gives the indication that the man that's going to rise up, this man of lawlessness, this antichrist, is going to come from somewhere that has a strong belief in some sort of a religion. Whether that religion is um, is a Christian faith, whether it's an Islamic faith, whether it's uh, one of those other ones that are just um, deeply devout, um, we don't know. Uh, my own opinion is it'll probably be coming from a, a Christian worldview, but that that's an opinion, and I have, and I will not stand on that as doctrine. Just an opinion. But he's not going to give credence to the gods of his family and his fathers and, and those that have come before him. He's going to stand apart from that. And then it says here, and he will not give... Um, he will have. Uh, he will show no regard, uh, or, or for the desire of women, uh, nor will he show regard or regard for any other god. Now, there are some that will point to that and say um, that maybe he might be part of that homosexual agenda, or he might um, not have a, a wife or a woman, or maybe he's a misogynist. Or, you know, I think that there's um, there's a lot of misunderstanding in this, and some people just avoid talking about it altogether because it's easier to avoid talking about it than to maybe get it wrong. But as I was speaking just now, as I was just uh, looking at this, it's like I was just hit with a sudden revelation that I hadn't thought of in, in the weeks leading up to this. And I've been pondering this verse for a while because it's one of those verses that almost every commentator just sort of bloop, overlooks because they don't want to deal with um, the implication there. But I want to point to our current culture that we have, at least in North America as well as in, in um, uh, the free area in, in Western Europe. We have a, a push to deify the femininity, the feminine around here. It, it's, um, and I, again, you know, I love my wife, I love my daughters, um, I enjoy uh, uh, the women that are in my life, their company, their, their wisdom, their knowledge, they're just, they're just I, they're obviously I, I feel that um, uh, their beauty and everything is, is just amazing. I'm not trying to in any way diminish the women that are in my life or women in general, but you cannot deny that there is a huge push from the media, from uh, the uh, the movies and television and books and, and the different stories that are coming out to lift up almost a cult, if you will, of femininity. Uh, it's, uh, in my opinion, it's a reverting back to the original uh, worship, pagan worship that was led by Nimrod, the first high priest of paganism in Genesis right after the flood. It was a worship of a mother's 
son cult and the, the deification of the feminine. We see that coming out in a variety of different places um, all throughout the, um, the days of the Old Testament in history. Um, the worship of Mithras uh, by uh, many in Rome uh, was also indication of that. There has always been this, this sort of this, uh, um, this magnification of the femininity. And largely uh, because women have the ability to give birth. They can bring life. And so because of, of being able to have the ability to bring life into the world, they oftentimes were lifted up. And, and we should respect and lift up our women, men. We should take care of them. But we also shouldn't worship anybody but God, the Father, um, Son, and Holy Spirit is, is one, our God. And therefore, we need to understand that. And so I'm thinking that, in my mind, that this right here is like a rejection of that cancel culture, that rejection of the femininity um, being a cult of, uh, that we should worship. Now, that being said, if you think about it, um, that would probably play very strong in many quarters of the of the world as people get frustrated at um, that over deification of the femininity, and I can see where that would um, be something that would lead this guy into great political heights, um, being going against that uh, particular culture. And it said that in verse thirty eight, though he's going to twist it around. Not only is he not going to show any reverence to anyone else, but the end of verse thirty. 7 says he's going to magnify himself above all of them and then he will honor um, a God of fortresses a God whom his fathers didn't know basically he's um, this is a, a Hebrew way of saying that he will have it he will worship the God of war if you will not so much the God of war but warfare in general he will stand again on the strength of his own armies he will control and conquer quite a bit um, whether he's conquering militarily, economically, um, I don't know. I don't know the full extent of this. Scripture doesn't give us all the details, just that he is going to be pretty powerful and that he is going to worship the might of his own power, his own arm that's enforced with his own army. Um, he goes on to say he will um, honor him with gold, silver, costly stones, treasures. He will take action against the strongest fortresses with the help of this foreign god. Again, we're talking about the armies that he has. And, and there's some things here that I, I don't completely uh, hope to understand. Um, it could be that there's a discussion here about um, uh, future technologies that have yet to be developed. I don't know exactly what this means, but I know the precision of the previous verses and I'm pretty sure that when we see this happen, we'll see the precision Decision that God has here as well. He says, at the end of the time, uh, end of the time, the king of the south will collide with him, and the king of the north will storm against him. Now, again, we're talking about Israel. We're talking about Israel being that buffer zone between the north and the south. Now, we don't know exactly what kings of the north and the kings of the south are going to be. Um, as many people have speculated, this is going to be Europe and it's going to be um, Africa, and and I don't know. Um, I really wish I had an answer for you, but I don't think anybody does. Um, it talks about great armies of. And talks about chariots and horsemen. Many ships will enter um, countries and overflow them and pass through. Um, again, we don't understand all of that. But in verse 41, he was very clear to say that this particular king will also enter the beautiful land. That is um, a euphemism, an idiom for Israel. He's going to invade Israel. That's when the things are really going to get crazy. Um, and at that time, he's going to stretch out his hand against these other countries. 
and Egypt and will not escape and he will gain control over all the hidden treasures of the gold and silver and all the precious things of Egypt and the Libyans and the Ethiopians will follow at his heels um, but rumors from the east and the north will disturb him and he will go forth with great wrath and destroy and annihilate many and then in verse 45 this is where it all comes crashing down he will pitch his tents and his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain that is uh, Jerusalem and yet he will come to his end and no one will help him so the end he's going to die alone and arrayed against God and God alone and God's going to take him out completely now we don't have a full picture here we just have a fairly accurate and interesting one I know some of it's fleshed out in Revelation and there's some other discussions and some other books of prophecy and we can draw into that um, but the most important thing we have to look at is that uh, his end is assured he's a defeated foe even though he's a king that's going to rise up and he's going to claim a lot the reality is he is a defeated enemy before he ever even got started and that's something that we can take to the bank because God has been accurate before and he's going to be accurate again and this is where we come to the end of it so we ask ourselves so what right let me tell you something for those of you that know individuals that are intellectual that are deeply um, uh, intelligent and they think on, on a deeper level. And we all know those people, right? We always know there's one or two people in our lives that we just would consider brilliant. And um, sometimes those people are not saved. If you know such a person that is truly brilliant and truly deeply, uh, truly a deep thinker, I would encourage you to challenge them to find fault with Daniel. I would encourage you to, to challenge them to look at the historicity of the book of Daniel and, and challenge them to prove that Daniel was not an accurate um, foretelling of the events that were going to take place. And use that as an opportunity to witness to some of our more intelligent folks. Um, for, for other people, the nice thing about the book of Daniel is it tells us that God is in control. That no matter what happens, He is on the throne. In fact, as we mentioned before, no human being can possibly know these events before they happen. Only someone who is given divine inspiration. And we know that because um, of these prophecies that did occur in verses 34 and uh, 30, uh, 35, actually 35 all the way back to uh, verse 1, then, then there must be a God in heaven who is able to reveal these matters. There's a second thing that we can look at, and that is that the divine omniscience and omnipotence of the Lord is clearly set forth in the book of Daniel. God tells us the future events. Therefore, he must have supreme knowledge and power over history. There's a third thing we can take out of this. And that is for those that, that who live... Um, for those who live after the predicted events occurred, um, there is the confidence that since the previous prophecies have been fulfilled, we know that he's going to be able to fulfill the ones that are coming again in full deliverance and triumph. And it will come true. There's even a fourth thing that we can look at, and that is that the, the fulfillment of these amazing predictions are evidence that the Holy Scripture that we have, this Bible right here, the sword of the Lord, is truly a product of nothing less than supernatural revelation. Therefore, the section of the book of this section of the book of Daniel is not an unimportant record of history, but rather a rich testimony to us, the believers, of the glorious God that we serve and the trustworthiness of His Word. We can stand firm knowing that God is completely in control. 
control. And let me tell you something. I don't know about you, but I look occasionally at the news. And I, it's, I'm, I'm, I look at it, and then my stomach starts getting all twisted up into knots, and, and I start to feel a little ill, and I have to turn away because I just can't keep looking at it. And I, I, I'm lucky if I get 15, 20 minutes in before it just makes me ill to see where our nation is, to see this great country that I, that I truly do love getting torn and twisted the way it is, and it frustrates me. But I know that ultimately I'm not a citizen of the United States so much as I'm a citizen of God's kingdom that has yet to fully manifest itself, but in the little way that it has, is truly amazing and stupendous. And I'd rather be the child of the living God and a son of the kingdom that will never end than to be in any nation on this earth, regardless of how great or not so great they are. That being said, I can tell you now, I'm concerned. I'm concerned at the, the, the who's going to be in control of our nation. But I'm no more concerned about our nation than Daniel was when he, when his nation was overthrown by Nebuchadnezzar. And it turned out fairly good for, for, for Daniel. Now you say, well that's Daniel and that was a time. Yeah it was. But any of us that think that a single individual that sits in a throne or in a White House or, or a single person who sits on a committee or, or is in a position of authority and power is going to, is going to ruin our, uh, our existence outside of the will of God is a fool. God knows what's happening. And I'm going to tell you now, there is a strong chance. And I have heard many theologians that I respect, that I trust, that I believe were truly inspired by God. Not to give prophecy so much outside of the Word of God, but just to give warning to the church. And that is that there is going, I believe firmly, there's going to come a day when our nation, our nation, will turn its back on God and the people of God. And our nation will see the church of the living God be driven underground. And you say, Pastor, how can you possibly say that? I say, well, look at history. Look at history. Every time that the church has undergone, the church as a whole has undergone persecution, it's thrived and grown. Every time that it's had a, a position of safety, security, and public acceptance, it has languished, liberalized, and fallen away. And I tell you now, there is no more liberal church in the world than the church that we love. There are churches in this town, there are churches in this state and in this country that do not believe that this is the inspired, inerrant Word of God. There are churches and people and pastors and preachers that will, that will preach and teach things that are counter to the Word of God and they actually say that this book itself is just a, a collection of stories that can guide us, but it's not truly the Word of God. You know, I heard a story by a former preacher once about a young man who went to seminary and they were studying the book of Daniel, ironically. And uh, they were talking about Daniel chapter 11 and how it was, uh, and, and the particular, uh, the particular uh, professor turned to his students who were all first and second year uh, seminarians and said, uh, just so you know, this particular book was written during the Maccabean period 
after the events that were um, that were recounted here actually happened and therefore this is a book of history it's not a book of prophecy and the little old Christian boy in the back who you know loved God and went to seminary because he wanted to serve God raised his hand you know young kid he says he says professor how can that be when Jesus said that Daniel the, was a prophet and wrote the book of Daniel and that old professor turned to that young man and he said well young man I have you know that I know more about the book of Daniel than Jesus ever did and then he went on to teach now if I was sitting in that class I would have said thank you very much sir and I would have put my books up and I would have picked myself up and I'd have walked out of that cl class because there's no way I'm sitting in a class um, taught by a man who says they know more about uh, the book of God than God right and so I never would have sat through that but I find it amazing that that still happens in seminaries all across the country and the sad part is we have we have pastors that are being trained in these liberal universities that are then going out to their congregations and teaching their people um, false heresy like that and it happens all the time and I would encourage you if you hear this kind of heresy to run from it it's, there's no place for that in, in God's house so I'm here to say that we have the security and safety to know that God is still on the throne. Now what does that mean for us? Where's the so what, right? Where's, where's the practical side? If you are a believer of the living God, I've just given you some of the greatest information you can possibly have to win somebody over that doesn't know Jesus as their Savior. I've just given you proof positive that God truly is able to supernaturally tell us the future and the future of mankind. I've just given you the weapons you need to prove not only that Daniel was a prophet, but that Jesus was foretold and he truly was the Son of God. And so you have all the ammunition you need. Now you need to take this information that you have and you need to go and share it. I realize you may not be able to share it as well as somebody who spent years studying in maybe college or seminary, but you can still share enough to get the message across. Jesus himself said, I want you to go. Whenever somebody comes and asks you about these things, don't give thought to what you're going to say. Just open your mouth and let me put the words in it. Now, I know I'm paraphrasing that, but the reality is, is the matter where we go, the Holy Spirit is going to interpret for us. He's going to give us what we need to say at the moment. We just need to be used by Him. Now, if you're sitting here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, your Savior, I'm here to tell you, there is a being in the universe that's outside of time that created all the things that we know in this universe. He understands dark matter, quantum matter. He understands matter, matter. He understands anything that does matter. He understands so much so that he knows exactly who you are. He knows where you're at. He knows your struggles. He knows your pain. He knows your shame. And he loves you anyway. Think about that for a minute. There isn't a person sitting in this room, Christian or non-Christian alike, that can sit here and say they have no shame. Because all of us have the shame of sin stamped in our soul. But if you're sitting there and you've never dealt with that, you've never asked forgiveness, you've never had Jesus flood peace into your life, you've never had the shame and the guilt and the turmoil in your life stripped away from you, I'm here to tell you that He is willing to give that to you if you'd only let Him. I'm here to tell you that Jesus loves you. I'm here to tell you that He wants you to be part of His family today. 
If you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, then you have today to make it right. Scripture teaches that today is the day of salvation. You don't have to wait. Now you say, how is that going to take place? I know a lot of churches love to have an altar call. We have our virtual thing going on. And, and those of you that are, that are worshiping online, I encourage you, please, by all means, reach out to someone that's in the chat. Send a message to um, uh, our Facebook page, private message to First Baptist Kenai, to me, Pastor Al Weeks. I'll be more than happy to give you um, uh, uh, words of encouragement and to show you in God's Word what it means to truly be saved. But if you're sitting here today and you need to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you know that you have eternal life in heaven that can be arranged there are people sitting here in this congregation that will be more than happy to, to share their faith with you, share from God's word what it's about. I encourage you to come see me after the service is over with see some of the other individuals that, that are going to be waiting around and ask them how do I become a Christian? And we'll be more than happy to take you into a, a, a private setting and share with you what God's Word has to say. If you don't want to wait for that, you just want to come down front. We have an altar. If you're struggling with sin or pain or hurt or loss or turmoil or trauma or anything that might impinge or infringe on your ability to worship and love Jesus Christ, whether you're lost or saved, doesn't matter. The altar is open. We encourage you to come down and take advantage of it this morning. That's what the altar is for. I encourage you to come. In a few minutes, we're going to ask uh, Jen to come back up. She's going to play a little bit. It'll be a nice, wonderful song of closure. Um, after the song is over with those that are worshiping online, you're free. For the rest of us, um, I encourage you to, uh, uh, to take this week and go with God and be His servant as He's called you to be. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we love you so much. Lord, as you come to the end of our service, we know it's not the end of your, of your message. It's not the end of your call. It's not the end of your work and your time with us. Father, we ask that you will guide us and direct us as we seek to love and serve you. And give us an opportunity to be your servants in all we do and say. Father, if there's anyone out there that doesn't know you, that hasn't um, come to know you, Lord, we just ask that you'll give, um, give them the opportunity to fully be embraced by you this morning. That they'll have a chance to repent of their sin because they recognize they can't save themselves. And that they'll have an opportunity to call upon you and accept that free offer, that free gift of salvation that you freely offer to them. And Father, we just ask that you give us an opportunity to see your kingdom expand and enlarge. That we might be able to be part of you and your mercy and your grace as you fly through this community and seek to save those that are lost. Father, we ask you to go before us this week and keep us safe. We love you and we thank you. We ask this now in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, the altar is open, and I encourage you this week to go with God.